Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, quick reminder, this podcast has its own official app. It's the Other People app. It's free. Get it wherever you get your apps. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. So here's how it works. You go get the app. The app itself is free. It's available for your iPhone. It's available for your Android. It's free. You get the app. When you do that, the most recent 50 episodes of the program will be waiting for you free of charge. You get 50 episodes for free. The most recent 50 for free. When a new episode goes up, it will automatically appear on your app. It's that simple. It's that user-friendly. And then if you want to get access to everything, if you want to be able to stream the full archives, nearly 400 episodes and counting, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's very cheap. It's a great way to support this program. It costs as little as 75 cents a month. For 75 cents a month, you get access to everything. You get access to a wide range of conversations with great authors like Edwidge Dantica, Cheryl Strayed, Ben Fountain, T.C. Boyle, Eric Larson, Susan Orlean, Tom Parada, Tao Lin, Sheila Hetty, Roxanne Gay. The list goes on. The Other People app. Go get the app. The app itself is free. Sign up for premium. Support the show. I would appreciate that. All right, let's get started. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right. Right. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is mostly coherent. This is plagued by fears of death. How are you? What's up? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, It's not as hot as it was. It's hot in the garage today, but it's not as hot as it was. It was like almost 100 degrees in the city over the weekend. Not to talk about the weather, but it's, you know, it's happening. This is the season when things start to get uncomfortable in L.A. The desert crushes you. My guest is J. Ryan Straddle. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name has been uh, bandied about a lot lately in book media. He's the author of a book, a novel, called Kitchens of the Great Midwest. It's available now from Viking. It's a New York Times bestseller. Debut novel, just like that. He's living the dream, folks. It can happen. Kitchens of the Great Midwest. I am not living the dream, currently. 
I mean, I'm living a certain kind of dream, but I'm not living that dream. My writing life, by comparison, is much less gilded. At least for the time being. Uh, I, you know, I've been trying. Like, I've been doing the nights. It's kind of a long story, but I've been staying up with the baby at night. Uh, I've been doing that. Trying to find a work-life balance. Trying to run on very little sleep. Trying to write in the depths of sleep deprivation. Finding it somewhat interesting, in a weird way. To be almost uh, stoned from lack of sleep. And uh, just today, just frustrated. This fucking novel. Like, uh, I tried to write, I think I've told you guys this. I tried to write a novel about a, a guy who tries to sell one of his kidneys for a large sum of money. I thought that would be interesting. Novel about a guy who tries to sell one of his organs for cash. But then it just seemed too dark. There was no way for me to find the funny in it. I wanted to find some kind of funny in it. And it just seemed bleak. Just got ugly. And so then... I sort of got meta, and I started writing a book in an autobiographical vein about a guy who tried to write a book about a guy who tried to sell one of his kidneys, but then the book didn't really work, and then his wife started having miscarriages, and they wanted to have a second baby. You guys know the story. It's like the story of my life. I thought, okay, we'll just do that. You know that. You're self-obsessed. Just dive in there. Muck around. Make jokes at your own expense. So I've got, you know, a decent chunk of pages. And uh, I think some of the writing is decent. But I'm not satisfied. It just seems it just seems miserable. I want it to be more fun to write than it is. It's just miserable for some of us, for most of us. That's the thing. You just do the mi- you go through the misery. I don't know. Is that the wrong attitude? And then eventually there's like gold A pot of gold at the end of the uh, shit-colored rainbow. Do I sound bitter? (laughs) So, yeah. So, anyway, I was was working on it. I was working on the book. I was in the library. I went to the library. That's how I wanted to concentrate. I was like, fuck it. I'm not even going to go to a coffee shop. I don't even want access to coffee. Go to the library. Confine myself. And uh, work on this thing. So I'm grinding, I'm, I'm writing, it's just, it's, there's no pleasure in it. It just feels bleak. Writing about miscarriages, writing about what I just went through. I need to maybe do something fantastical with it. Maybe I'm being too literal. I need to start using my imagination. Or maybe the fact that it's painful means that it'll be a good read. People will be able to connect. Because I'm putting myself through this. It's an act of sacrifice. It's Christ-like. Not to be too grandiose. Is, is using the word Christ-like to describe my writing process too grandiose? So anyway, today, can you tell that I'm a little tired? <laughs> I don't know what's happening here. I'm working without a script. I'm, uh, I'm uh, up on the high wire without a net. I'm dangerous. So today I was uh, working on the book and I got frustrated and I closed the file. I shut it down. said, fuck it. This is something I've done many times. I don't like it. Fuck it. I'm done. Why am I doing this to myself? And uh, I started to think to myself, what kind of writer do I want to be? What do I want to write? What am I interested in? What is the work that I'm on this earth to do? What is the work that I'm on this this earth to do? Uh, Perhaps it's podcasting. (laughs) And uh, as a side note, 
is any of the work that I'm on this earth to do ever going to uh, generate significant income? Not that I'm obsessed with money. I'm just curious. Not that money is the most important thing. The pursuit of money only leads to misery. I've read the wisdom books. I understand this, but for fuck's sake. Do you ever have that feeling? So anyway, uh, I was working on it. I shut the window and uh, I stopped working on it. And I started asking myself uh, very important questions about the work that I've been put on this earth to do. What is most important to me? And what kind of book would I actually want to read? That's the question to ask, right? Write the book that you would actually want to read. And so then I got on this thing where I was like, you know what? I should just do like a David Markson ask card book about, uh, you know, human beings throughout history who have somehow attained a higher level of being spiritual masters, gurus, saints, what have you. That shit fascinates me. I'm interested in knowing how to be on uh, the earth. Who are people who are really good at this? Who are people who were good at life, who got it, who figured out uh, how to do it? Like, is that true? Did they really? I want to know. And so I started to imagine and have uh, like really fantastical fantasies about this David Markson-esque card book, you know, like a literary collage done in short uh, pointillistic bursts. You know what I'm talking about. Just about the lives of uh, the saints, for lack of a better word. But then I started to imagine how much, re- uh, you know, how much research it would require, how much time to do all that reading. It would require a ton of reading, taking notes, amassing the cards. It would t- thousands of cards, most likely, would be required. And uh, with two young children and uh, the pursuit of uh, money, a part of my existence, whether I like it or not, it becomes hard to imagine how I could ever do all that research because I live in an expensive city costs money to live here and so uh, i then transitioned is this getting too long <laughs> i then transitioned i'm just going to go with it i then transitioned to uh doing like an internet search for about 30 minutes where i was randomly googling the names of uh small towns in beautiful pristine nature environments checking real estate prices thinking to myself maybe i could just uh, cloister myself in such a place while i do this this uh work it's very important work that I've been put here on earth to do. I don't know, man. This is what a monologue sounds like when I'm operating on cumulatively. Like, let me try to break it down for you. Since July 21st, when my son uh, River was born, I've probably averaged about three solid hours of sleep per night. My wife, is a, she has a little bit of the baby blues. For those of you who have ever had babies, you know how that goes. A little weepy, especially after dark. So I'm trying to be uh, a good uh, husband, trying to take some of the uh, duties, especially those after dark. So I'll do the nights if I could have some time during the day. But, like, I do the nights, and then I don't, and then I just, then the day starts. You're sort of up all night, and then suddenly the sun rises, and then you go out and you try to meet the day. That's what I've been doing for a month. It's okay. But it's making me uh, a little wacky, I think. Hopefully, uh, it's entertaining. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. 
based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest once again is J. Ryan Straddle. He's a friend of mine, full disclosure. Uh, we socialize from time to time here in Los Angeles. I've known him for a while. He is a fixture on the Los Angeles literary scene, and now he is uh, becoming a fixture on the national literary scene with a New York Times bestseller, his debut novel, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, available now from Viking. It is uh, such a pleasure to see him succeed like this on a personal level. It's also a pleasure to see uh, somebody succeed like this on a broader scale. It's nice to know that it can happen. It's an inspiring story. So we're going to hear from J. Ryan right now. Here he is, folks, J. Ryan Straddle, and his novel, one more time, is called Kitchens of the Great Midwest. <laughs> It was about 10,000 when we moved there. Now it's about 22,000. What's the town? The town is uh, Hastings, Minnesota. Where's that? It's uh, south of St. Paul on Highway 61. Okay, I've heard of Hastings. So it's not far from Minneapolis. No, no, it's a little south. You can commute there. Okay. Yeah, and back. All right. Yeah. Happy like people who do. People who grew up in Minnesota. Everyone but my wife loved Minnesota. Oh, growing. really? Why did your wife not? I don't know. She just wanted out. She thought okay. she, it was too cold and boring or something. Oh. Okay, you, you do have to make your own fun in some parts of it. Well, dude, you're talking to somebody from Wisconsin and right, Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> I made a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> so, but I mean, did you grow up happy? I I think so, yes. Yes. Yeah, I have fond memories of growing up. All right. The, 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 you know, something uh, easy about being a kid in the Midwest. Yeah, there is. You don't have to... Uh, I mean, I think about raising my daughter in the city, and it's like, well, she's going to have a lot of opportunities I didn't have, but she's also going to have a lot more to contend with. There are a lot of things to contend with that I never even had to consider. Absolutely. I don't know exactly what all those things are. I'm imagining them, but I think they're going to be there. Right. It seems there are more var- uh, there are more variables here in a city, in a city this size. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the, there's a lot of privilege. There's mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, I mean, I like the idea Exposure of- Exposure to greater wealth and greater poverty. Yeah. It's like, why don't we have a plane? You know, mm, like that sure. sort of shit. It's going to be like, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining this happening. Yeah. Like, how are you going to have, I, I mean, I guess that's an easy conversation to have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. There will be harder ones. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, growing up where I did, the vast majority of people I grew up around were pretty much in the same socioeconomic strata. Right. There wasn't a lot of, you know, very wealthy people or very poor people. Okay. But to see, that's, 
this is what I long for. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like when there is a wide gulf, it creates a lot of angst for everybody. Yeah, sure. You know, uh, rich people, uh, I think, feel uh, often guilty or they feel like uh, they don't know who to trust because Mm -hmm. everybody wants something from them or they feel like... You know, a lot of times they can just only hang out comfortably with other rich people because it's like you have this manse and you have sure. uh, an infinity pool and a plane and everything. And then, like, your poor friends come over. You're kind of like, uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> yeah. Or they're concerned that everyone they meet after a certain point just wants something from them. Exactly. That no one's uh, their friend. Which is true. <laughs> Which is totally true. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, uh, you grew up in Minnesota. Yes. Happy childhood. Um what, what did your folks do? My dad, growing up, worked at an oil refinery. They had oil refineries in Minnesota? No, the second largest okay. in the country. I didn't know that. It, it's now called Flint Hills Resources. All right. When we were growing up, it was called Coke Refinery, as in Charles Coke. He worked for the, the Coke brothers? Yes, he did. Okay. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do. Yeah. So uh, what kind of... He was an oil man. Um, he was what, what's called number one on a unit. All right. Uh, I don't remember exactly what that was. Some kind of supervisory troubleshooter out on like i was talking to bud smith about it and bud smith knew exactly what i was talking about because he's a boilermaker i just talked to bud yeah 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 bud smith knew all about what my dad did he understands my dad's job better in one sentence than i did 14 years okay isn't it weird yeah uh but but then bud does very similar work to what my dad did okay yeah or or he works with people who did what my dad did i still have no idea what my dad did he's retired i know what my dad does now he's a hydrogeologist Oh, he is? Yeah, for the DNR in Minnesota. What's the DNR? What uh, the Department of Natural Resources. Oh, right. And then what does a hydrogeologist do? They work with the relationship of water and land. Okay, that so makes sense. So in Minnesota, that constitutes shorelines and aquifers. All right. And you may not think about it, but there's an awful lot of shoreline in Minnesota. Yes, there is. It's a <laughs> land of lakes. Yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful place. Yeah. Okay, and did you grow up uh, outdoors? Like Oh, the, yeah, quite a bit. In the woods? Very much. Very Huck Finn? Uh, no, not like that. Okay. But, um, fishing? Lots of, yeah, fishing, exploring, camping. Slingshots? Uh, not slingshots. Yeah, we weren't <laughs> I don't know why. kids. I'm yeah. picturing, I'm picturing yeah. you with like a, a homemade slingshot. That, oh, not so much. Okay. Yeah. Um, BB guns? We did have those for a little while. Yeah. We learned gun safety at a young age. You shoot guns? I have, yes. You go hunting? Uh, I have not yet. You have any desire? I I, I might. Really? Yeah. You want to kill something? I don't know. Okay. I'd like to find out. <laughs> Everyone in my family, all, all the men in my family do. Except you. I I never have. You just missed it. Or I'd did you? Stay, for- I'd stay home and read that weekend. Okay. Yeah. So you're great. okay because your dad's a science. Like your dad's a. Uh, I mean, is he a blue collar guy? Like a yeah, boilermaker? Like yeah. you know, but he's got like he's good with tools. I'm imagining. Oh, absolutely. Like that kind of guy, and then also science brained. Yeah. But yet you. Have an artistic bent. Right. You I get... took after my mom more. Okay. And my, my brother took after my dad. My brother, um, you know, uh, wouldn't miss the opening weekend of uh, hunting season for all the tea in China. No, he's... He still goes. Oh, absolutely. Like in a deer stand. Yeah. Do, yeah, do you he, have... he built his own. He did? Yeah. He gave me the instructions on how to describe them in the novel. Okay. Yeah. The chapter, uh, Venison, um, is inspired by a lot of information my brother told me about his experiences deer hunting. All right. And he eats every, he eats the deer. Oh, yeah. And so do I. You like it. It's amazing. Okay. So I'm a vegetarian. Okay. Hunting gives me the, I I don't understand. (laughs) I'm an animal like empath. Sure. Do you, can you make me understand the psychology of why it's fun to go out and like sit in a deer stand in the freezing cold and shoot a deer? Uh, I can't because I haven't yet. 
but I think I understand why they do it. It's it's both fun and tradition and camaraderie. It's a it's also a family event. It's just family. Yeah, do that. It's my dad, my brother, and a few of my uncles on one uncle's property. Okay, and so it's also on private land, so they don't have to worry about being accidentally shot by some interloper. Right. Um, but no, they seem to get quite a bit of enjoyment out of it and the butchering and the... It's like some sort of ritual. Right, yeah. And it also go, I mean, it goes back generations, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. This is something oh, like absolutely. your ancestors did. Sure. Okay. Uh, and this land that your uncle has, like he has a big piece of property? Yeah, outside of Sandstone, Minnesota. Where's that? Central Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. Like just prairie kind of, land? Kind of east central. Like frozen tundra? Uh, more forest up there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. It's kind of where the farms meet the meet the woods. Okay. And your mom was an artist? She was a writer. Uh, she worked for the uh, Department of Public Service, uh, which is a, another branch of the state government in Minnesota. Yeah. She went back to college when oh, I was eight or nine. Okay. And finished her bachelor's degree in English uh. at the University of River Falls, or U- University, University of Wisconsin, River Falls, and would bring home her uh, homework and read it to us what like uh, she was writing like short stories and stuff yeah uh but also just essays on like chaucer's canterbury tales and so on so she would read me canterbury tales i have distinct memories of her reading it to me oh wow like as a bedtime story how old were you oh, like eight or nine okay that the sound of the uh the english language as represented in that work was fantastic and it and um i, I could see how much she valued books the house was full of books Almost all of them are hers. My dad's a reader, but a, a lighter, much lighter reader than my mom. Uh, my Me- mom meaning like lighter in terms reader. of... Li- lighter in terms, lighter of, in terms of, of volume. Volume, but yeah. and also what about content? Like, does he read... He likes uh, John McPhee a lot. Oh, okay. I think he has just about everything it's John like McPhee's written. deep nonfiction? Yes. That's not, that's not light reading. No, it's not light reading. Right. No. You come from brain people, I feel like. Just uh, knowing you. Like, you come from intelligent <laughs> Midwestern... Yeah. You know, like thoughtless people did not produce J. Ryan Stroud. <laughs> um, and is your is your mother still with us? Uh, no, she died ten years ago. She did. What happened? Uh, she had omental cancer. What is that? Uh, Brooke can describe it better than me because she's a nurse. But the omentum is a um, kind of an intestinal. It's kind of a membrane over your stomach and intestines. I think. Uh huh. Um, it's not a widely described or <laughs> known organ to i think to a lot of people outside the medical profession i mean it's the first time i've ever heard of it but it's tissue it's it's interior tissue that you know can uh, hold cancer cells with as much alacrity as any other tissue uh-huh. and that's what happened to her uh it had metastasized from her ovaries where it begun Ugh. so the proximate cause of death was omental cancer how old was she uh, she was 55. Ugh, yeah. That's a bummer, man. Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how old were you when that happened? Uh, 29. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, old enough to like be able to process. Oh, absolutely. But still heavy. Yeah, very. Did it... Uh, I mean, how long have you been writing? Working on writing books? Oh, wow. Uh, I've been writing since I was a little kid. Uh, one of the first things I would do after I learned to read was write written by... Ryan Stradle in crayon, and, and your name and, and, and is, it, but your name is J Ryan. Oh right, Let's, I didn't know I was J Ryan until sometime later when I found my birth certificate. And but like just J, yeah, just the letter J. So the, the J doesn't stand for anything. No, not literally. Your parents gave that to you though. J period Ryan. Is Why? What they named me. 
it goes back to a disagreement with my grandmother on my dad's side. Uh, right before I was born, or shortly before I was born, uh, an uncle on my dad's side died. Straight Chick Joe. It's Czech for Uncle Joe. My dad's side is all 100% Czech. And my dad wanted to name me after him. Name you Joe. Yeah, name me Joseph. But my grandmother objected. So they decided to name me J. Ryan as sort of an homage to my vestigial name. And so when did you find this out? Uh, when I was 11 or 12. And then did you start going by J. Ryan? Oh, yeah. Immediately. It separated me from the Ryans. There were a lot of Ryans around. You're like, no, I'm J. Yeah. Ryan. Yeah. And everybody I know who, I mean, because we know each other from around town, yeah. they all call you J. Ryan. Yeah, it just separates me from the J's and the Ryans of the world. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, I, I want that. It's it's unique. It's different. So you were writing things. I wasn't afraid that it was weird. No. Like, I've never been afraid of being This weird. makes me feel good because we might name our son something that's quote unquote weird. Oh, that's great. And uh, I'm not going to divulge. Okay. Not all on right. the air. I, right. I can't because it might not happen. Okay. We're debating still. Okay. But it's like a little bit heavy because you're sitting there going, oh, God, you know, like, are we going to stick him with something that's going to be a burden? Right. Is he going to hate us? Right. Uh, do you believe that people live up to their names in a sense? That people... I, I think that... I, th I don't know. No, not always. Yeah. You know, because you might name some kid like... Odysseus. Like, Mac yeah, Maximus <laughs> Alexander, and he could turn out to be a douchebag. <laughs> Uh, you know, like that so you, that's perhaps living up to it. Right. But, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, but the point is that I think that people tend to, um, like if, if you have a kid who's got a quote unquote eccentric name, or you could have somebody who's got, um, a really bad name, I, you know, bad in quotes, some mm. name like normally you'd be like, Oh, but like mm. somehow if they uh, are a person of very high character mm -hmm. and, uh, they, then you, you live up to it. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you, sure. you carry whatever name you have. It's yeah. about it's about how the person behaves, not what they're called. Understood. But the if, person ennobles the name and not vice versa. Exactly. Exactly. But I do think that there are certain names. Um, I mean, like, you ever read Freakonomics? Oh, no, I haven't. Okay. They did My this, brother read it. Yeah, they do this big thing about naming and how naming can actually be a true hindrance. Hmm. Um, and they do statistical breakdowns. Yes. But a lot of it, sadly, has to do with... Uh, like uh, culture, ethnicity, race. Mm -hmm. So like if you name your son some name that is like very quote-unquote African-American. I see. That could potentially be a hindrance later on in the job market, statistically speaking. Sure, when but, they encounter racists in HR departments. Well, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Somebody in the HR department gets a, uh, mm -hmm. a, a resume and the right. name on there, they just go, oh, no. Right. We're going we're gonna to interview Steve. We're not going to interview, you mm -hmm. know, Chantel or whatever the case. Understood. Um so, you know, I think there's something to that. But then again, our president's name is Barack Obama. That's great. Hussein in the yes. middle. I mean, okay. so, you know. My grandma voted for him. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That she lived to vote for someone named Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah. yeah. My mom voted for him. Um, yeah. My dad, my dad's holding on. <laughs> He's a conservative. <laughs> we tried. Everyone in my family voted for Obama, but him. That's great. Um, okay. So you're writing your uh, stories as early as like 11 12 years old and you're signing your name to them i think that's actually an interesting detail because i think it's actually common hmm. for people who have uh, a writerly tendency or an artistic tendency the idea that i'm like this is mine bye right. i'm gonna start by stealing but, but you're also now, i'm gonna take richard scary's cars and trucks and things that go and take credit for it <laughs> i love it so much it's mine yeah his initials are practically mine too but you're also it's clear that you that means that books made a deep impression on you and that, that you had a very deep sense of oh these things are written by someone Yes. They're not, they don't just magically appear in the store no. or at the library. There's a person there. There's a person behind it. I saw my mom writing, too. Right. So, yeah. And that's a powerful thing. Yes. Like, I think about wanting to make my kids musical. Like, mm -hmm. I, just because that's like a dream I had that never got realized. Right. But unless they see me playing the guitar, 
Right. It's going to be hard. Yeah. And plus, we don't have a piano in the house yet or anything like that. Understood. I got to get that done. Yeah. It's on my list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ways I'm failing as a parent. <laughs> um, Ways you aren't succeeding yet. Yeah, right. Exactly. There's things to develop, you know, to grow into. But Absolutely. It's, you know, I look at people who are musical and people who become very uh, gifted musicians and very good on instruments. A lot of times they have somebody, uh, you know, at arm's reach who can do, really play. Well, my brother is very gifted musically, and my parents aren't. Okay. Nor am I. That gives me hope. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. he can sing and everything? Oh, absolutely. He's a wonderful singer. Damn. Yeah. Where do you get that from? I have no idea. <laughs> None of the other three of us had a lick of talent in that regard. My now, gr- I've been in three bands in my life. Really? Like four, even, I think. All right. Yeah. I, I'm a much sought-after band member. I what guess. do you play? <laughs> uh, I don't play anything well, but I have played... Um, Keyboards, sampler, and some percussion instruments. Well, like you can a play gyro, vibra slap, uh, claves, that kind of thing. Right, but that that, that means you can play. Like if uh, you can play I can in a band, instructions. You can play right. something. Like you put me in a band on a keyboard, nothing's happening. I'll put uh, the best analogy I can think of in regards to my skill as a musician is like a chef creates recipes. Uh, that's a musician. Perhaps a cook follows them. I was a apprentice cook you're an apprentice a cook. short order cook yeah. yeah 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 yeah. you're the guy like in the line just yeah. like putting the stuff on the tacos right exactly okay. <laughs> i was that was my role in the band all right yeah. so okay so, so basically need this noise to happen <laughs> like just wait for your cue make that noise <laughs> i didn't get into what key is it in you know I, well when i was playing keyboards obviously i was concerned about that like what key is the song in? yeah you know, but i didn't i wasn't gonna solo no, yeah. you're not going to riff or jam. No, I don't like that I verb. I played by a the lead way. melody line one time in a song. One time. Did it go over well? I was totally tense every time I had to play that song. <laughs> <laughs> what song was it? It was a song called "Death Is Incidental." Okay, yeah. it was an original. It was an original. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I like the title. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, so writing, adolescent, book nerd, mm-hmm. book nerd. Like, is nerd uh, appropriate? Yeah. Okay, yeah. you were constantly reading. Yeah, uh, I started by reading novelizations of my favorite movies in the 80s. So like E.T., Dark Crystal, Star Wars, that kind of stuff. Sci-fi, fantasy. Sure, and buy the novels and uh, you know exhaustively pour over those. So you were also a movie nut? Yeah, I like movies. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you think to yourself, I'm going to write books one day at that age? Oh, I certainly hope so. You did? Yeah. Even then? Yeah. You tell your parents this? I did. Okay. Yeah. What did they say? Sure. They were supportive. <laughs> yeah. Nice pe- like nice parents. Not not like, oh, you got to be an engineer or you got to. No. 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 This is no. what you like. Go I for think it. My mom always wanted that for herself. And so I think she wanted it for me as well. Did did her not getting to do. She didn't get. I mean, she did the course of study, but she never published, correct? Uh, she published in her school's literary journal, Prologue. Okay. That blew me away. I brought that to school for show and tell. Oh. And my mom's a published writer. Yeah. And would read her work from prologue i did it at least twice i was very proud of this <laughs> that's awesome yeah and i re- exhaustively read prologue yeah prologue still exists i believe uh as a yeah the literary journal of university of wisconsin river falls um and yeah i just love prologue it was a prologue addict the two issues she was in were like my two favorite books okay years. but a big inspiration oh big time yeah and, to see my mom get published in a journal was and, huge and then but also like the work that you do and the fact that you have this book published uh you know coming out now it's got to feel good You've got to be thinking about her as you go through this. Oh, big time. Like it's, I, it's an extension. It's like you're carrying the torch for her in terms absolutely. of her literary aspirations. You nailed it. Yeah. Certainly. That's really awesome. That's like, I mean, like, it's a sweet achievement to publish, but I think that, like, it makes it especially cool. 
I felt like the process of writing this book was a long conversation with her. Really? Yeah. Did she cook a lot and everything? Was she into food? <laughs> Not really. She <laughs> she was into enjoyment. Say so she was more of a uh, I don't know. Epicure isn't quite right. Uh, voluptuary, perhaps. Yeah. What do you mean? She ate for enjoyment. She ate what tasted good and drank what she liked. Okay. See, this is it. This is like, I mean, I find myself wondering if this is how I should be more. Like, should I be more like this? Because, like, my entire attitude towards food is, like, it's fuel. Mm -hmm. I just want to put healthy stuff in my body. Yeah. It's fuel. But there are people who are like, I'll eat anything. Life is a party. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't do that. Like, am I a, like a just total joy kill or what do you call it? Buzz kill? <laughs> kill joy. You know what I mean? A joy kill. Well, do you enjoy the food you eat? I do. Yeah. I, I like, nothing but, wrong. but here's the thing. Wrong I enjoy the food that I eat because I eat healthy food. Yeah. And if I don't eat healthy food, it makes me anxious. I'm just glad not to be anxious. Yes. If I'm eating like Twinkies, I'm like, oh, fuck, man. That's this is for you. Okay. Yeah. And you crave, you crave what you eat. So I think you've got yourself in a pattern of eating healthy and you want to continue to eat healthy. I like that. You just know you've, I, I eat what makes me feel good and that's usually healthy food. But I think that people have, I mean, people always have, there's always an emotional component to food. Absolutely. And, uh, I think and that a mnemonic quotient as well. And a what? A mnemonic. Meaning? Um, well, think of Proust. Uh, what you eat, uh, is comforting, not just in a physiological or sensory sense, but often, a um, a nostalgic sense. I was going to say, so there's, there's like some sort of tradition like your brother hunting yes there's family recipes passed down absolutely you come from a certain culture my book has plenty of family recipes in it okay so but it's like there's all of that mm -hmm. and uh i get it and i think that you know when it comes to uh you know i, I, I think about this a lot you, it comes to like emotional eating mm -hmm. that can be healthy I think it that can it, be. It I think can be. it I, has a connotation of being unhealthy, but I think it can no, be like being being happy about what you eat and enjoying food mm -hmm. is great. Right. Um, I think when you become a person who whose happiness sort of depends on food, mm. you know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. I got to eat this. This is like my. It's like my whoopee. You know right, what I'm saying? Got I got to eat it. these donuts sure. and I got to eat these Doritos and like yeah. it becomes like a, then it can become, you can slide easily into like the realm of the unhealthy. Sure. Um, but I guess I, I start to, I start to get, um, it's maybe freaked out is too strong of a word, but I think a lot about consumption in terms of its impact on the environment and whatnot. And it's like, look, I know that this is a tradition. I know that. Uh, this is it has an emotional component that, that brings you true joy, mm -hmm. but it might be destroying the planet for like future generations. Like, where do you fall sure. on that kind of stuff? Wow, the uh, ethical considerations of what we grow and what we consume. Yeah, I think it's out of hand. Yeah, uh, yeah. In terms of you know, particularly in terms of cattle. Uh huh. Yeah, that's I a could thing see for being me a too. Vegetarian just for uh, you know sustainability reasons well there, there's also this thing now where they're they're starting to test like uh, artificial meat like they're mm. like it's not even live cattle like they're growing meat in labs wow <laughs> which you know it sounds crazy but like right, as right. the population of the world uh, you know continues to like escalate uh you know in the middle class like the living standard rises mm. especially in the third world and the countries mm. like india and china mm -hmm. and these people start to get into the middle class and what do they want to eat mm. they want steak mm. <laughs> And there's just not going to be enough land to graze the cattle, and you're going to run out of resources. Yeah. So eventually, or we'll we... have to choose different symbols. 
Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Or yeah. or they're just going to grow steaks in labs. Sure. Which would be an interesting like. Uh, ethic- cool if they could grow shark fins in labs. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, yeah, who, who it's knows? The same kind of thing. Um, but it's like it brings up interesting ethical questions for the vegetarian because mm-hmm. it's like this is grown in a lab. Mm-hmm. No animals were harmed. It's yeah. just like a beautiful, perfectly engineered steak. Do you want it? It's incredible. I think I'd eat that shit. I'd try it. All <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I'll try it after you do. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so okay, you, you get through high school and you go off to college at Northwestern. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Uh, th- thinking to yourself, I'm going to become a great novelist. No. Um, I felt like I did want to write. But I didn't feel I didn't feel confident well, perhaps I had enough intelligence to go on by this point, but I didn't feel confident that I would be able to do so for a living. Like write fiction, write short stories. So you had some sense. So I decided to uh major in something that I thought would be a uh, good and fun way to make money while I wrote. Which was? Radio, TV, and film. Okay. Monstrously competitive industry. My God. But, but also uh, also creative. Yeah. Creative, but like you, you hit the nail on the head. It is monstrously competitive. Absolutely. There are, especially living in Los Angeles, you see yeah. it, everyone's trying to do it. Everyone. And you... And many people can. Many people can. <laughs> a lot of people... And then, you, like, and then you get a whiff of these people who yeah. do like extraordinarily well, and you're like, ah, oh, yeah. and it becomes this like, you know, yeah. march. But uh, it can be a very cold town. Mm. because of how many people are trying to do the same thing. Absolutely. And it's not usually overt. It's like unspoken. It really helped to have an active life outside of that realm. Yeah, meaning book life. Yes. Gives you some sort of way to ventilate and, and, Absolutely. and interact and with people who aren't trying to do that. If my sense of self, identity, ego was permanently appended to my career in television yeah it would have been a rougher go psychologically um it's a mercurial industry yeah i think you need things outside of that life to stay sane and be happy right um, for the most part it can get toxic i think it can um i know great people who work in that industry and i had the privilege of working for some incredible showrunners you know who are really nice and but what did you do like what or what are you doing like uh currently I, now I'm just working on my next book. Okay. Uh, so you're not, you're, you're not working on uh, in TV anymore? Not at the moment, no. Okay. Yeah. You made enough off the book to just go, and you have some savings. For now, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I had savings from well over a decade of working in television. As it's a... a generous industry. Totally. It can be. Yeah. So what were you doing in television? I started at VH1 as a development assistant in the tv department this is when vh1 was still making a lot of programs in-house like behind the music pop-up um, video exactly and before they segued full-time into uh outsourcing reality tv shows like they do now um i'd started training as a story editor so wait just let me let me stop you there they were making shows in-house meaning yes. they were staffing them producing them all under their tent yes and then they start to outsource them is this like a, a similar kind of outsourcing that other kinds of corporations and other industries do absolutely it is so they don't have to pay anybody it, benefits and they they're just, not unique to this yeah everyone does it they just farm it everyone out everyone does it okay yeah so staff the, members you have to you know supply with benefits and you know, health care and so what on. the fuck well i know it's extremely common in many industries but it's very common with unscripted tv okay yeah all right so they so you were there when they were still doing it in-house Yes. And then you wound up getting where? I segued into production. Uh, worked 
with a really wonderful woman named Andy Timoner, who is now a celebrated documentary filmmaker, on a show called Sound Effects, which was a show about how music affected or changed people's lives. That was my first story editor gig. And from there, I followed some people to ABC, where I worked on parts of the first two seasons of The Bachelorette and uh, the spinoff Tristan Ryan's Wedding. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. Well, and story there, editor meaning like you look at the footage and you find the narrative in absolutely. it. Absolutely, because you have like with the reality show with documentary footage, you shoot a lot more. Yes, like there's a much there's a much bigger ratio in terms of shot to used. Yes, and as a story editor, your job is to go sift through mm-hmm. all of the footage and find the narrative. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, because a lot of people I don't think know what, a, the, what yeah. a story editor does. Right. Right. Story producer it can also be called. Okay. Um, or a segment producer. Not writer. Eventually, I moved to uh, original productions, where I'd spent most of the last six years. And that company was wonderful to work for. And we worked on some uh, high-quality shows together, like uh, Deadliest Catch in particular. I really, I, And I really enjoyed Storage Wars Texas. That was probably the most fun I've ever had producing a TV show. Right. That was just a riot. It was a joy to go to work every day. And that's where everyone was going through the storage bins. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a really simple show. And it was fairly easy to put together. Uh, we had great people doing it. Great showrunners. Uh, Steve Robillard and Tom McMahon were just awesome. And uh, it's, it's also, it's like, I love documentary. I love documentary uh, in general. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Uh, documentaries about weird subcultures. Yeah. Often it is. It's yeah, great. about Errol Morris. Yes. and yeah, But I mean, like there's people who go and line up outside of storage bins. It's like they're yeah. treasure hunters. Yes. You know? Yeah. yeah. There, are, so, there are countries Jawas. Yeah. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so are you... Are you not, uh, not, not my quote. I'm quoting someone. I think Matt Johnson even. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. and you, uh, <laughs> did you, you were a creator of that show? No, no. Uh, I don't remember who created it. I think it might have been Steve Robillard. Okay. Um, I don't remember who originated the show. It might have been Steve. He was definitely the showrunner early on. And, uh, yeah, I just worked on it early on. I only worked on Storage Wars LA briefly, and that was last year, last spring, when I was actually actively agent hunting and on the phone with you talking about agents. I was instrumental. You were. (laughs) Absolutely. I couldn't have done it without you. Um, So, yeah, I just spent about a month or so on Storage Wars LA. But I spent two seasons on Storage Wars Texas, and it was it was so much fun. And now you're trying. Are you trying to make the leap from I'm working full time in television to support my book writing habit? Are you now thinking like I'm going to go for it and see if I can make the leap and make make my living solely from the writing of books? Yes. You think you can do it for a time anyway? Yes. Really? Yeah. For I'll, I'll give a shot. You sold now this book. Time. You sold a second book. Yes. You have some savings. Yes. You're gonna. You're ready. Now is the time. I have the tiger. Yes. <laughs> he busted I'm in with the I in Tiger. <laughs> Can't spell Tiger without he I. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's good though. I mean, you know, and it's like it seems like a very, uh, I'm very lucky to be in this situation. It's a very lucky situation, but I was just going to say that, like, it's also uh, a more sensible approach than many people take. Like, a lot of people make that leap before they really have justification for it or before they've put in a decade working a day job right. and, you know, and socking away money. money. Yes. You know, and I'd so... I saved up enough to live comfortably for over a year Yeah, to write my first novel. Okay. And so the um, advances I received on the first two books were in addition to that. So you sold... Did you get a two-book deal? Uh, no. You sold this first book? Yes. Pretty quickly. Yes, yes. You got the agent. Because I remember you got the agent who, yes. I, you know, full disclosure, is my former editor. Wow. 
right? Amazing. I Ryan Harbage. Yes. He edited my novel. I love that. Okay. And then became an agent. Yes. He's your agent. Yes. You signed with him. And yes. then how many weeks until the book sold? Eight days. Eight days. Yeah. It's that good. People in New York. Mind-blowing. People in New York, multiple offers? Multiple, yes. Auction? Uh, preempt. Preempt. Yeah. You took the offer. They made a great, an offer you couldn't refuse. Yes. Okay. And uh, who's publishing? Viking. And you like them? Pamela Dorman is an incredible editor. Okay. So uh, you fly out to New York and meet them? Yes. Did you? Did they ask you out, or you're like, I just want to meet you because you bought my book? They asked me out. They did? Yeah. So you go out, and did they send you around town to meet people or do anything like um, that? <clears throat> not really. I met many of the principals at Viking and Penguin. Uh-huh. Um, they made the bar recipe. They made a number of the recipes from the book uh, to greet me in the... I met a lot of the sales and marketing staff. Oh, wow. I met my future uh, publicist. See, they're high on this book. Uh, yeah, they are. They bought your second book based on what? Uh, 39 pages of it. They just said, we want more from this guy. Yes. How exciting is that? It's mind-blowing. It's okay. Do, do you feel like... Because like, you know enough about publishing. Very lucky. You've been around writers enough to yes. know this, just this doesn't happen. happen. No. So you know that you have something good going. You're in a, you're in a good house. And, you, and not only are you in a, uh, being published by a good house... Uh, they believe in you. You feel that. Yes. And like they're publishing a lot of other authors. Yes. They might believe in them less. And like, I don't I mean don't to think of, I don't think about it like that. I know, but I'm just saying it's a business reality. They have to pick where they, they have to decide where they're going to put their resources, which horses they're going to bet on. Mm -hmm. uh, where are they going to place the bulk of their wager? They seem to have wagered on J. Ryan Straddle. So do you feel any pressure? Um, <laughs> I'm building this up in a very dramatic way. Yes, you are. <laughs> and I never think about it in these terms. You're um, the American Pharaoh of Viking. <laughs> That's what they want from you. When I sit down to write, I don't think about any of this. I didn't when I was writing the first book, and I don't think about it now. You can shut it out. Absolutely. You don't think about business. No. It's all art. No. What do you think about? Who do I want to write about and what's important to them? You think about your characters. Yes. Do you think about think your about readers? All the time. You do? Yeah. They become real to you? Yes, very. Do you write autobiographically or do you write like mostly? Like it's like obviously everything is autobiographical, yes. but are you are you really moving away from yourself in terms of the constructions like narratively and you know, character wise? I'm moving closer to myself. When I was younger, I'd write much farther away. As I've gotten older, I've... I think I've developed the um, confidence to write about stuff closer to me. They may not be topics or characters that specifically hew to my experience, but there are things that are emotionally dear to me. Okay. Yeah. Most of my writing life. You've seen me read a few times. Uh, I just want to write stuff that I was entertained by and that I thought might entertain two or three other people who share my weird sense of humor. That, but like it, I, I you, wrote, got, you also got to. I like get, to be funny. Well, you got to. You like to be funny. Yeah. Uh, I was just talking to uh, Matt Summel. Oh. And uh, he was talking because he's a funny guy. Yeah. And you know, we were talking about being funny in uh, literature. Yeah, you want to be funny, but it's not enough to just be. You're not just telling jokes. Right. You have to change people's temperature too. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, yeah. like you want to make them laugh. Like, what did he say? You got to make them laugh and then break their heart, essentially. Right, right, right. Something like that. Yeah. Um, I break my own heart every time I sat down to work on this book and with the current book as well. Like, I want to make myself upset. Do you ever get? Do you ever cry while you're writing? Sure. sure that, that, that's happened. That's happened to me before. Yeah. 
And I'm like, what the fuck? And then, like, for a minute, I'm like, this is so good. And then I'm like, what am I doing? It's not not because of that, actually. It's because I I think what I... What I what I just wrote is really sad. Oh, I know. That's what I mean. Oh, I see. That's oh, what I, I mean. See. And then, like, I'm like, but I'm like telling myself, oh. like, <laughs> the fact that I'm emotionally moved by this is a good sign. This must be good. Oh yeah. If I'm crying, well, I always felt the op- when I was writing funnier stuff when I was younger. I thought if I don't laugh out loud while I'm writing it, I'll change it. Yeah. I'm gonna sit here until I think of a line that is funny enough that I laugh out loud thinking of it. Yes. Then and uh, then it's ready. It's a good litmus. Yeah. If you're bored. Or not laughing, yeah. it's going to be ten times as bad for the casual reader. I agree. You know what I'm saying? Because you have an emotional investment. Like, you're primed yes. to like it. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, and, and I think sometimes we can have blinders on with our own stuff in weird mm-hmm. ways. But Absolutely. you have to have that kind of emotional honesty with yourself. Like, mm-hmm. is it moving you? Is it making you yes. genuinely laugh? And if it's not, uh, something's wrong. Or if it's not making you genuinely cry or something like yes. that. You know, I always say, change your body temperature like you've got to mm-hmm. do something that gets people feeling in a real way mm-hmm. and uh, if it's not happening for you it's not going to happen for them mm-hmm. so um you're working in tv you start like so you're 39 yeah we're the same age mm-hmm. you and I, uh you were you started writing uh kitchens when i started writing kitchens on february 25th 2013 okay and you have novels in the drawer that you never published? Yeah, I have one. Did you try never to... See the ride, ne, we'll never see the light of day. Did you kill it, or did you it. take it out and try to sell it? I scavenged it. I uh, Oh, no, what's the word uh, used in like, motorcycle parts? Um, not scavenge. Um, boy, I wish my dad was here. Uh, like when you take a bike apart and reappropriate uh, pieces of it. I understand. Um, I mean, I understand that. I forget. Yeah, okay, that's basically what I did. There's a, there's a great word for it that motorcycle repairman use. Um, so you took some pieces of it yes. and they, they went into kitchens. No, no. Uh, those pieces were published independently as standalone. Oh, okay. Uh, including the first story I was ever, that I ever had published in my life, which was, uh, called the Augustus McKinnon story, which was in issue six of Hobart in 2006. Oh, after that, I had a four year drought of not being published. A lot all. of rejections. Yes. You've dealt with a lot of rejection. Four years of it. Yeah, and? nothing published between 2006 and 2010. Are you a competitive guy? I wrote the entire time. Are you competitive? I'm one of the most competitive people I know. You are? Yeah. But see, you don't... You this is There's something sneaky about you, because you don't, on the outward... No. You don't come off as a competitive guy. No. But and you, I'm not competitive about things I can't control. I, I just kind of raise my hands and go with the flow with an awful lot of things. But I've been put in a competitive situation I want to win. In a game, like ping pong. Absolutely. You get pissed off if you lose? Uh, I used to more than I do. I'm calmer <laughs> now. You flip over a ping pong table in your day? Any kind um, of time? As David Foster Wallace once described Michael Joyce in terms of um, his competitiveness, he used the phrase, shutting down lines of thinking that aren't to his advantage. And when I read that, I thought, that's me. If I realize I cannot win a situation, I recalibrate it to find a victory in it. For example, like if I'm playing a ping pong master, my victory might be to score a point against him. I know I will not beat him, but if I score a point, that is a victory. Good. That is what I want. I will change what I want to fit the situation. Okay. Yeah. That seems wise. Well, it's a it's easier to live when you're not furious. Okay, and then what about what about <laughs> as an artist? What about as an artist and specifically as a novelist? Like are you I mean, you're very deeply involved. Something I admire greatly about you is how involved you are in the literary community. You give a lot. Thanks. Yeah. I really wanted to have something to offer. Also, at the time that I started actively writing in 2006, there weren't the um, 
preponderance of literary events. Which you attend almost uniform. Like, you're at every literary event in Los Angeles. I go to as many as I can. You go to a ton. I find it inspiring. Like, I saw you at one recently. Yeah. That moved me so much, I had to go home and write. I really wanted to hang out with you afterwards. I'm like, <laughs> sorry. Like, this has given me too many ideas. I've got to go home and work. And you're like, I, I can, love it you're like, I, you're like, I can improve upon this a lot. I'm going to go home. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, I'm moved by it. Uh, I enjoy the company of other writers. I love other writers. I love the writing community here. I think it's very smart and hardworking and uncompetitive. And, you know, even as a competitive guy, I don't feel competitive in this realm. I feel like a rising tide lifts all boats out here. Yeah. I really feel like we're, uh, we're, we're all in it together. So when you pick up the newspaper or go online and read about so-and-so winning such-and-such a literary award... I think it's if, it's... if they're from L.A., I think it's awesome. But do you ever just go should be me it's gonna be me do you uh, do that kind of stuff i can't control that kind of thing okay yeah That's so not, I, I don't think about it you know do you track it do i no i don't follow awards really. do you have goals do i have goals yeah i want to continue doing what i'm doing you want and to keep publishing and making a living from it i'm in the best place of my life i've been in so far i'd like to sustain it sure yeah perhaps even improve upon it what do you want to do like how to, does it how does it i, mean, I know you want to keep writing and i know yeah. you want to keep publishing but like do you have a career that you use as a benchmark? A person who, mm. in no. publishing, no. I haven't thought of that. Maybe I should. How many books do you want to publish before you die? I don't know. We'll see how many come out. Okay. But you're not like, I want to have 10 in print? No. 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 Who are your heroes? Mm. Uh, literary or otherwise. But Anything. But I mean, literary, start there. Wow. Um, I really admire David Foster Wallace. I know I'm one of millions there. Uh, it's not a unique... Um, affection but absolutely uh growing up i was a big uh borges fan I read everything of jorge louis borges interesting yeah that's a new one on this show oh really i haven't had a lot of people like as a teenager i was into borges yeah i loved it yeah i got into him in my late teens through um an older friend uh guy who was a theater director um let's see <clears throat> well, what is it about wallace i mean he's got a huge brain oh yeah and, and ben catcher I would be remiss if I didn't mention the work of Ben Catcher. Um, his ability to strum narratives out of Ben's overlooked items. Uh, ben or, or for oh, Wallace? Oh, oh, for Ben. Okay. Yeah, I just love the um, stories he would conjure out of everyday life, out of the ignored details of everyday life. He's just a master at that. And as a kid who just kind of sat quietly and waited for things to be over a lot, I would always just sort of be taking in my environment and occupying my imagination with conjecture about why things were the way they were. And, and Catcher does that writ large in a kind of mostly vanished alternate version of New York City. Okay. Yeah. And then what about Wallace? Wallace. Wow. Um, you know, his his empathy and his... Um, and the level of emotion in his writing is what really struck me. Sure, it's very intelligent, and I can find myself paralyzed sometimes by the the vastness of like his intelligence. Yeah, yeah. in my own like I'll just be like, oh, like I can't write. Right. Like you know, sometimes sometimes you can read something, you're like, yeah. my god, yeah, this guy's just playing a different game. Yes, like yeah. he's living I, in a different world. I certainly felt like that reading Infinite Chest, but I felt that reading it also made me a better writer. Uh huh. I still haven't gotten through it. I've tried like three times. It took me three times as well. <laughs> but the first two times I was much younger. Yeah. I was a less sophisticated reader. I'm a, I, I'm a big fan of his nonfiction. His fiction, I have a harder time with. Yeah, it is harder. Yeah. Yeah. But it's rewarding. 
very much uh -huh. deeply Infinite. when you're when you're ready for it it'll reward you uh incredibly did it inform did infinite jest inform kitchens certainly big time i think uh more subconsciously than consciously but it but it did help me think that an unconventional narrative could be the story i wanted it well could be a framework that i, I would like to use okay yeah that and well some other contemporary books as well like a visit from the goon squad in particular well yeah no it's like a lot of times i feel like that's the case where a person's got a story inside of them or you know characters they want to uh follow around and it takes sometimes reading uh you know work i don't know you, you got to find an example like a way forward and a lot yes. of times these ways forward these books that you find that serve as sort of uh, uh lighthouses for you uh they open up a lot of possibilities structurally and so on yes you know they take they go oh you can do it this way mm -hmm. oh you don't have to follow these rules oh it doesn't have to be linear oh you can digress oh you can make lists oh you can yeah. do powerpoint presentations or whatever you know it's like yeah. or like an esquivel's like water for chocolate you know Right. Uh, build a book around you know recipes and ingredients. Right. Yeah. So um, you start writing in February of 2013. Yeah. It's now. It was February 25th, 2013. Yeah. You wrote it pretty quickly. Yeah, I finished it February 24th, 2014. In a year. I kept a journal. Yeah, I kept a journal of um, every day I wrote, and wrote down the chapter I worked on that day. And how many did you work every day? No. Almost. Some, um, I'd say about. 85%. How were you tracking yourself? Did you do word count or did you just... No. You just sat down and worked? Yes. And if I wrote one sentence or 4,000 words, they ended up with uh, equal weight in the ledger. Did you do, do you write longhand or do you type? I type, but when I'm not typing, I will sometimes write longhand. Okay. And then transcribe it later. Does it, does it have a, is it a different experience for you? Like I've, you know, I've heard like some people say, oh, if I write longhand, it's more freeing. I feel like a kid. I'm imaginative in ways and, you know, more liberated to take chances than I would otherwise be. I'm not constantly deleting myself and mm -hmm. retyping. That's usually not a problem anyway. Once I get going, I just want to keep moving forward. Yeah. You don't, you're not constantly like doubling back and rereading and deleting and. No, no. I don't think about things that would slow me down. Okay. Yeah. I just try to believe in the story do you outline no it's all intuitive i will outline what the general themes are like i know what i'm working towards but i don't outline a chapter or a novel uh once i get into it a bit i will i will outline a sort of a, I will outline in the sense that like say you're making a thanksgiving dinner you know, once you've got 60% of the food done, you start thinking about where on the table you're going to put it. And that's how I outline. Right. Yeah. And you ever surprise yourself as you're going? Like you always constantly. Go, yeah. That's a fun, that's a, one of the, yeah. I think it's, a, it's not something that's talked about all that much when it comes to people describing their experience of composition, but it's one of the most enjoyable parts of working on fiction. No kidding. Is when you have these like weird synchronicities between the research that you're mm -hmm. doing and the character in the book yeah. or somebody in your life, you know, something happens, you know, mm -hmm. and like all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I had no idea this was going to happen. And I love it. Your character surprised you. Yeah. I live for that. Yeah. So, uh, you finish that, mm -hmm. you go out and get an agent. Yeah. You sell it in eight days. Uh, well, first I copy edited it. Uh, four people helped me with that. Uh, one person copy edited the entire book 
three other people copied sections of it. So when you went to an agent, it was pristine. I felt it was as pristine as it could be. See, not a lot of writers would do that. It was extremely important for me to put my best foot forward. Yeah. I I did not want to mess this up. You don't want to have comma splat. You don't want to spell your name wrong and be like, here, I want to be an author. No. And that can easily, I mean, in, a, in any any work of significant length becomes unwieldy when it comes to quality like that because you just miss stuff. Like I, I one of the great experiences of publication uh, is getting copy edited mm-hmm. because it feels like you're, you know, oh my God, you're saving me from... Like, even after doing all the copy editing that you did, when you then went to Viking and got published, they, they took you through, like, another editorial. Of course. They, yeah. they found stuff, too, didn't they? Uh, well, the notes process certainly excavated and rearranged um, the copy enough that mistakes were. <laughs> I, I hate using the passive voice, but, yeah, mistakes were made. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah... Uh, yeah, basically new errors were created during the notes process. But, but, and, I, but, and I'm sure some that even the first four copy editors may have missed were also discovered. One of the things that um, also struck me were inconsistencies. Um, I asked everyone to look for them. And the uh, copy editor for Viking yeah, still found some. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, But like I said, they may have been developed through the notes process still those people are masters oh they're amazing that job that's a job that kind of uh mystifies me that people can read something like that and yeah suss all that stuff out one of them also sent me an index of every proper noun that was used in the book and what pages it appeared on i think keep track of that okay yeah <laughs> I that was amazing that's like a level of nerddom that just like is yeah. beyond i love it yeah so okay so you go through a copy editing process prior to even seeking representation yes then you get your you get your agent. Mm-hmm. You sell the book in eight days. Mm-hmm. When do you start working on this new novel? Oh, I started it already. You had already gotten going. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I no, I didn't start the second novel until February of this year. Okay, February's February is your. I was going to yeah. say. Well, football season's over. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Priorities. Yeah. And I did read Steve Allman's book, and and I and. I appreciate it, but I just still cannot divorce myself. I can't either. I'm in the closet. I secretly am like, I'm still watching it. I I can't stop the violence. I know. It's delicious. Yeah. What is that? I don't understand. I think he, that's the thing. I think he's right. I don't have the strength of character. I don't either. If if that's what it takes, I don't in that regard. Maybe someday. I won't let my child play football. Right. Mm -hmm. But I can't stop watching it. I understand. They're my heroes. (laughs) (laughs) God damn it. Um, All right. So your laugh. Oh, thanks. It's a unique laugh. <laughs> People who know you. I mean, not this little like light yeah, chuckle, yeah, but not that the, laugh. the big laugh. Yeah. Somewhat Eddie Murphy-esque. Right. Was it inspired Tommy, by uh, Eddie? Uh, no. Um, the comic Tommy Davidson insulted it once. He insulted your laugh? Yeah. When? In uh, a, in at, a, a, at a fundraiser. Okay. I was in the audience, and I laughed at one of his jokes. And he, said, <laughs> uh, he said something about someone from Hee Haw being in the audience. <laughs> uh, so, so how did it... I mean, because like... It's such a unique laugh. I always think, like, is this something that was born of mimicry as a child? Like, did he hear a laugh? And then, because I, I, I tried to laugh like Eddie Murphy as a kid. Wow, you did. Yeah, because like Delirious wow. and Raw were like Those big for great me. Great distinct laughs. Yeah. yeah, and I was always like, I wanted to have his oh, laugh. Delirious and Raw also do not age well. I don't know if you've seen. Them. No, no, no. Like the AIDS jokes and stuff don't age. Terrible. terrible. But like Beverly Hills Cop, Eddie Murphy. Oh, yeah. Eddie Murphy was like the guy for me when I, or one of the oh, guys. Yeah, he was. Um, so I thought maybe like maybe, maybe Jay Ryan like. Like he pulled it off, but you could actually do it. Or is this how you've always laughed? I'm not sure at what point this laugh developed. You have no idea. No. And you've just, you it was wrote. not a conscious decision either. 
It's a, it's a it great. It has such attention to itself. It's it's not really my character to develop a laugh for that reason. Yeah, but do people constantly ask you about it? No one asks me about it, but people comment on it a lot. What do they say? They say it's distinct. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the thing I like about it uh, is that it, it's a laugh that makes people laugh. I've heard that from comedians and improv actors who want me to come to their shows just to incite the audience. To yeah, laugh. yeah, no, it's like it's infectious. Like there's worse things. I mean, there's worse kinds of uh, infectiousnesses to have. Oh, certainly. I see billboards (laughs) for them around town. You know, if you can infect people with something, let it be laughter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you don't have it. There's not like a family history of this laugh. Not that I know of. This is unique to you. Not that I know of. And you don't remember when it started? No. You had it in high school? in high school, probably. Okay. Like yeah, puberty? One of my high school friends. Maybe they'll listen to this. Maybe like at the onset, of, maybe at the dawn of puberty. Maybe. Like, that was when it happened. Right, right. When my voice deepened. And that was it. Yeah. When I became a baritone for the first time. And you never, and you never have been like, I got to quiet this down. You're just like, fuck it. I'm going to do it. Yeah. That's good yeah. for you. I can't help it. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's your laugh. Right. Um, and you like Los Angeles? Oh, yeah. You're staying here. So far. You're not going to like, now that you're a fancy uh, literary guy, you're not going to move to New York and try to go there and do that? No, no. You don't like New York? Um, I don't see myself living there. You I appreciate the city. Yeah. I have a good time there, and it's wonderful. But given the choice between living there and living here, I'll pick this place. You will? Yes. You've been here for how many years? 16 now. 16. Yeah. Uh, having grown well, up. 17, in, actually. And you get back to Minnesota how often? Going back four times this year, but it's an unusual set of circumstances with the book. With the book. Uh, typically, it's two or three. You go back two or three times? Yeah, usually at least once in the summer and it, around the holidays. It's beautiful in the summer. Oh, it's stunning. And great at, the, stunning. great at Christmas, you know, the yeah. lights and the snow. Yeah, I mean, it's lovely. It's it's uh, Burl Ives, you know. It's, <laughs> right. Do you yeah, guys, do you, it's people, a voice card. When I grew up in uh, Milwaukee, people Christmas caroled. Oh yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, me too. Not only people did, but I was part of them. I was yeah, one of them. yeah, like, that was. But it was like normal. Yes, the Christmas came and like people caroled. Yeah, I lived in one of those neighborhoods. Yeah, same here. It was like Mayberry. Yeah, we had a general store. Wow, like literally, it was called the general store. Wow, in the town that I grew up in. Amazing, and it was sort of like you know, kitschy touristy. Sure, it was sort of like we have a general store. Yeah, just like they did in the old days. You know, right. it wasn't right. like without irony or without. Uh, right. You know, it was kind of loaded with that meaning, but. Yeah. Um, they also, there was a blacksmith and oh, wow. Main Street. And, you know, it was kind of wow. a, yeah, it was a cute little town. Yeah. Um, but you never see yourself going back to the Midwest. It's hard to say. I don't know what circumstances would lead me to do that right now, but I have a lot of affection for it. I could see myself living there again, sure. Well, and this book sort of brands you uh, as an authority to some extent, <laughs> or at least, I mean, you, you show your roots. Uh, I'd say uh, an enthusiast. And, and well, I mean, and you, <laughs> you have to believe that people, uh, and I would imagine Viking feels similarly in terms of its marketing efforts for the book. You're hoping for a good response in the Midwest from readers. Oh, I'd love that. You're yeah, speaking to them. I'd be very honored. I'd be very honored if Midwesterners enjoyed this book. I think there's I a, I think there's a brilliance to the title of this book because oh. I feel like food culture is obviously risen in, uh, in its, um, importance in american cultural life i mean food culture food network food shows cooking shows my own family yeah yeah the evolution of food consciousness yeah so you have that everybody is kind of fancying themselves as a chef these days people Mm. love to learn you know it's like people are more foodie than ever like absolutely in our childhoods in that no it's like macaroni and cheese and it was julia child yeah 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 well julia child but like i just i I didn't grow up the classics like beard on bread and things like that yeah there's some midwestern stuff yeah my parents had some like gumbo my parents are from the south so like we do stuff like that but yeah um it's just it's really gotten more and more 
embedded in the way that absolutely. we are. And uh, absolutely, but kitchens of the great Midwest, like how that there, I feel like there's a lot of consideration put into that title in was, terms of how it would play. It was what I named the word file the first time I saved it. No shit. Yeah. Because it's like it just a, sounded good. I know, I, and, I'm but, but it was kitchens, one of those great Midwest. One of those titles. Like, often I think of a title very early, and when I do that, it's to set the tone for what I'm writing. Uh-huh. And I felt that's what this title did. I thought of the title, yeah, immediately, and it just stuck. Yeah, I just couldn't think of the book any before other way. you wrote word one of this book. You wrote that title. Yeah. So the book. Well, was- that's what I saved it the first time I saved anything that went into the book. I thought, what, what do I call this file? Not document one. It's. Uh, how much of the book could you see in your head when you did that? Quite a bit. I knew what the ending was. Okay. Yeah. See, I think that's something that... I'd been thinking about the book for years before I started writing it. Okay. But I, so I, think... I catalyzed a notion of its themes. All right. But also, like, having a sense of the ending, I think, can be enormously helpful. Yes. Because then you know where you're headed. You know your destination. I initially meant to be writing backwards from the ending. Then I ended up writing forwards to it. Yeah. However, I, I ended up writing my first chapter, I think, third to last. Yeah, once I knew what what narrative I was setting up, the first chapter, I think it was the third to last chapter. Hmm. Yeah. So do you want to, uh, do you, have, you don't have kids? No. You want to have kids? I'm not sure. You got books. <laughs> you got books to write. Yeah, yeah. But it's not, an, it's not an impossibility. No. No, it's not. You could do it. I could. You're going to be sought out. I mean, are you dating anyone? Yes. Oh, you are? Mm-hmm. Okay. I was going to say, now you're a hot author. <laughs> you're going to have groupies. Oh, I doubt it. <laughs> um, well, man, I don't know. I'm trying to think if uh, have we covered everything. Is there anything anything we didn't cover about you that people need to know? Not unless you want to talk about John Quincy Adams again. Yeah. Um, is, he your favorite, is he your favorite president? Uh, and wait, favorite are, president. Oh, wait, that's tough. I don't know. I mean, you do you like history? Oh, quite a bit. Because we were, I think, before we came on the air, we were talking about John Q. Adams. He's a one-term president. Yes. But uh, very... Like, Probably we, the best Secretary of State of all time. And just a really smart guy. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. Like, I feel like there was a certain level of erudition in oh. the past presidencies oh, certainly. that we have been lacking. I think Obama's a really smart guy. I think Bill Clinton's a really smart guy. I think George W. Bush was lacking in that department. And uh, you know, we could go on and on. If you read some of the insults you know, that they even traded amongst themselves, it's, it's ab- like, like Alexander Hamilton's dressing downs of... Thomas Jefferson are staggeringly erudite. Yeah. Yeah. They're wonderful. It's it's like Shakespearean. It was a different time. Yeah. And people, the reading was it. Uh, Yeah. And most people couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I just feel like, I mean, I, like I think I've talked about this before. I romanticize mid 19th century. Oh, I didn't know that. I I do because I feel like this was pre mass media, pre industrial revolution, transcendentalists, Mm-hmm. There was still a frontier. There was a lot of crazy religion spreading up everywhere. I don't know. Yeah, I guess people were dying of, of like you know. little um, co- intentional communities, especially all through like New York State and New England. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I found it was I, a I, wild time. People just read, and uh, there's a yeah. time of Lincoln. I mean, it was a civil war, and people sure. were dying of like tuberculosis and yes. God knows what else. You yeah. Know? So it's like it's easy to romanticize. It was a grim struggle for an awful lot of people. <laughs> right. Yeah, most of history was. Yeah. So, uh, so history presidencies, like you pay some attention to that. You do some reading oh, in yeah. that department. Absolutely. You like politics. Robert A. Caro's series on LBJ is my game of Thrones. Have you read it all? No, I haven't read the last one yet. Oh, you haven't, no. but you've read the others. Yes. Wow. They're, they're incredible. What do you think of? Cause they're that, incredible. Yeah, I know. 
But like, what do you think of Lyndon Johnson? Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, like having read what three of them? Fascinating. I mean, he's uh, I don't know. I can't think of a of an analog. Um, I, I I unfortunately I was not able to catch the uh, the play they did. Uh, oh, with Brian Cranston. With Brian Cranston, yeah, right? I would have loved to have seen that. Um, no, what a tremendously interesting guy. I I can't even describe him. Incredible like. politician. Oh yeah, masterful. Yeah, yeah, masterful politician. But yeah. also like crazy troubled. Oh. He would go to the bathroom in front of people as a power play quite often. That's also that's always stuck with me. Yeah, he'd invite you into the bathroom, sit down on the toilet, and talk to you there. Yes, just to humiliate you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whatever, LBJ. Right. <laughs> what are you going to say? Right. The president's like, come on in, boy. Like, right. you know, and just sits down and just takes a dump in front right. of you. That's got to be the worst. Yeah. You're going to do, what are you going to, yeah. Yeah, but he was the guy who recalib- recalibrated a really long stratified um, era of American politics in regards to the role of Southern Democrats in politics. Now, he didn't recalibrate that region's political attitudes, but... We gave away the South. He lost the South. He, a Southerner, you know, he was a Southern, a Southern president, um, signed the first ever meaningful civil rights legislation since the Civil War. See, you want to talk about civil rights legislation? I just want to talk about him going to the bathroom in front of people. (laughs) Let's reduce him to that. Yeah, yeah, and this is you know decades and decades of um, uh, Southern Democrats destroying any chance for um, civil rights reform. I mean. It wasn't like it hadn't been tried before. Right. Yeah, it had been tried many times. But it took him to do it. Um, ultimately. He knew how That's to... how it turned out, anyway. Well, that's just the... You know, what's the first thing he said when he got to Washington? He's like, who's got the power here? Mm-hmm. That's a good question to ask yeah. for somebody just arriving as a congressman or whatever. Absolutely. And uh, that was all... I mean, he always had a very clear sight mm-hmm. and, you know, had a genius for how the machinery worked that I think is rare. I agree. And also an ability to manipulate people. Right. Which you have to, I mean, you have to know how to twist arms. You have to know um, what, like a politician, what do they desire? What yes. do they need to get reelected? Right. He would always know that mm-hmm. and then leverage it. Yeah. But uh, I yeah. don't know. Those biographies are incredible. Yeah. Like the level of detail. Oh, and, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you and know. They're, they're general history books too. Not just of the person, but of the, uh, the time and uh-huh. the realm. Yeah. The realms he was in. Okay. So politics we've done. Football. Football. Are Very a, re- related. Are you a Colts or Packers fan? Packers 1A, Colts. Well, Packers 1, Colts 2, because I lived in both as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely I mean, we had season tickets to the Colts games back, back when Jack Trudeau was the quarterback. Oh. Gary Hogaboom. Wow. They, they were lean years. Were you into the Jeff George era at all? A little bit. Okay. It was miserable. Oh, yeah. He's such an asshole. Tough time. Yeah. But uh, yeah. anyway, uh, Packers I grew up on in Wisconsin. I imagine you're a Vikings fan. Yes. Huge. Yeah. You have any hope this year? More more so than in quite a while. Bridgewater. Yeah. He's a good quarterback. Great. Yeah. Yeah, increasingly so. I really enjoyed the Week 17 win against the Bears last year. What about uh, Adrian great. Peterson? You've got to be conflicted. This guy... <laughs> it's weird. He beat his son. Yeah. Very violently. Yeah. That's fucked up. Yeah. He shouldn't be... I mean, what do you do with that? I don't know. He got a year off. I mean, they, you kicked yeah, him out of the league year. for a year. He lost yeah. his pay. Right. Is that a, enough punishment? The NFL felt so. And but you know what? Everyone else judges them. He'll break an eighty-yard touchdown, and people will go crazy. That's the way it'll be. Yeah, unfortunately, Jay Ryan is not in. It <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's a violent game. 
Right. We'll have to have Steve Allman do like do a intervention for us. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. That's what he should do. That's what I think Steve Allman should do. He should do football interventions. Mm-hmm. Like a person's friends and family like gather in the living room and they're just like you have a problem. Well, one of the things he mentions in his book, which he admits is difficult to uh, argue against, is one's sentimental attachment to the game vis-a-vis um, connecting with family oh, or friends. Oh god. Yeah. 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 Like, the, like for example, I know, there are many people uh, who might differ from their parents politically, spiritually. Yeah, right. But I'm raising my this, hand twice. Right. Yeah, Brad's <laughs> raising his hand. They have, but they both love the Packers. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. Or, or, LSU. It's yeah. all LSU football. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that um, people get um, quite meaningful and nostalgic about. Food and like football. We have this game. Like my dad and I used to watch a game every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of thing. And you can talk. About, it's a common dialect. Very much. Where, where, all stripes of uh, all stripes of men, all but, classes, all races, yeah. all ages. Right. Yeah. Something, did you see the game? Did you see the game? Right. You can sit there and break down the defense. And Absolutely. Strange. Absolutely. And as he points out in his book as well, like, like the sort of people that um, a literary type, you know, might judge in a bar, you know, to be sort of a, a bro or, you know, for lack of a better term. Douche uh, bro. Right. Right. Not the sort of uh, person in our immediate social circle. Well, has access to and will gain sophisticated understanding of the most arcane concepts sure. as it relates to football. They can talk extremely intelligently about it. Well, no, there's, I mean, I've, I think I've talked about this in the past, but it's like the, uh, oh, there's that wasp. Oh, it's always in here. Yeah. It just, it, it's part of the show now. It lives. Um, look out. The guest wasp. It's doing a flyby. But, uh, no, but there's like Negative a. Negative ghost right of the pattern <laughs> in the fall. <laughs> right. There is a, uh, a line of thinking that I find somewhat convincing where it's like people who feel alienated from politics and powerless, Mm. you know, to affect change because the banks control it and big money controls it. And regular people really can't affect Mm. the process beyond their vote, which, you know, pales in comparison to billions of dollars or whatever. Sure. They will give up on following politics so many people could barely even know who vice president is. You know what I'm saying? When they do those polls, it's a depre- right. it's like staggering. It's depressing. Yeah. Yeah. But they can tell you everything about their favorite team. Yeah. Whether it's football, baseball, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, you know, the line of thinking goes to like, what if people poured the kind of attention and uh, dedication into following politics that they did into following sports? They knew every piece of legislation, what was coming down to the house floor. Wow. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because it is kind of, it's like a similar Type It'd be of, intense, but it might be a better uh, society. Well, the problem that um, I'm sorry, the problem with that is how divisive politics is. Um, whereas sports doesn't, you know, well, sports does have a political stance. Obviously, you know, the existence of the NFL and the realm that it exists is political. Yeah, I mean, it's a nonprofit. Yet. Um, the public funds an awful lot of their stadiums. Yeah, there. Are- I think it actually just rene- I think it just actually rescinded its nonprofit status. Oh, <laughs> so Roger Goodell no longer has to report his salary. Oh, very interesting. Which was like thirty six million dollars yeah, a year at last count. But I don't know. I think that I think that would be a really interesting, engaged electorate. But it would it would be it would be quite divisive. Right. Yeah, I think we'd have a lot of uh, factions. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I. I do feel in countries I've spent time in, like Argentina, where voting's mandatory and a lot easier to do. Um, you have a more informed electorate, and you also end up with like, 17 political parties. 
or at least 17 people running with all different shades of political stripe. And I think, yeah, I think people are frustrated with electoral politics, especially on a federal level, but you can sure it enact an awful lot of change on a local level. Man, I voted in these last two local elections and I think I was like one of like 8% of voters in LA County who did yeah, something like that. Yeah. Oh, it just blows my mind. It, and there was an awful lot of canvassing for them. Uh, I don't feel like, you know, people uh, didn't know there was elections happening. But especially in these small turnout local elections, boy, a couple people could really... Tilt it. Yeah. Well, big time. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's so, been fun. Uh, it's been fun talking to you. Oh, it's been absolutely wonderful, Brian. I'm really happy for you. Oh, thank you. I feel like it's like this is one of those things where it's like a, a good guy won. I think a lot of oh, people... Man. A lot of people in LA and the literary community feel that way and it's just you like I said you show up to everybody's readings you support you put on reading events of your own and invite people and now you're getting kind of your moment in the spotlight and I'm just thrilled for you oh thanks Brad that's really nice to hear all right man best of luck with the tour thank you all right guys there you go that's Jay Ryan Straddle go get his novel kitchens of the great midwest a New York Times bestseller available now from Viking you can find Jay Ryan online at jryanstraddle.com. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at jryanstraddle. He's on Facebook. He's on Instagram. You can peruse his photos. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the Other People app. Go get that app. The app is free. Sign up for premium. That's not free. But I would appreciate it. If you want to email me, let me know what you think. Tell me stories. Offer me unsolicited advice. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. I guess it's partially solicited since I'm handing out my email address on a podcast. I'm very fatigued. I'm doing okay. I, you know, the uh, monologue I realized today, a little wacky. Part of it was delivered for a comedic effect. There was self-awareness involved. I'm just trying to ride the wave of fatigue. It's hard to be uh, productive creatively in any capacity when you're this tired but I'm trying valiantly doing the best I can you know please remember that Frank Norris died of peritonitis and that Jean-Paul Sartre died blind Sartre Sartre died blind god damn it Thanks again to J. Ryan Straddle. Go get Kitchens of the Great Midwest. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate that. I'll be back again next week with another conversation with another writer. You'll be able to listen to it. Perhaps I will be better rested. Perhaps I will be in a better mood with respect to uh, my creative endeavors. I'm not a quitter. I can't quit. Just got to find the thing. Got to find the thread. Where's the thread? What's my thing? I don't think I... Where's my voice? I gotta find my voice. <laughs> can't find my fucking voice. Where... I, I'm a podcaster. And I can't find my voice. <laughs> <laughs>